I'm Jessica Livingston, and Carolyn Levy and I are the Social Radars. In this podcast, we talk to some of the most successful founders in Silicon Valley about how they did it. Carolyn and I have been working together to help thousands of startups at Y Combinator for almost 20 years. Come be a fly on the wall as we talk to founders and learn their true stories. Today, we're catching up with the fabulous Tony Shu, founder and CEO of the food delivery service DoorDash. Tony and his co-founders were students at Stanford when they first launched DoorDash as a class project. Y Combinator funded them as part of its summer batch in 2013. In this episode, Tony takes us through version one of their idea to what is now a public company operating in 27 countries across the globe. Hi, Tony. Hey. How are you? Glad to have you on board. Carolyn was just saying she had she used DoorDash last night. Just so you know. Yep. I I'll save this for later because but I do have to devote a small amount of time during this podcast to talk about the evolution of my DoorDash fandom because it's <laughs> so big. <laughs> no, we're really, we're really excited to have you. So I want to actually ask about your childhood because I feel like you once told me that. You had a lot of connections to sort of small businesses. Is that true? Yeah, that's true. I came to the U.S. when I was five, and I, I came with my parents who emigrated from China and you know came to the States with $200 in the bank and really wanted to make a better life for all of us. And you know, I, I think looking backwards, it's super crazy. But back then, I was just excited for the unlimited Coke I could drink on the flight over. <laughs> but we immigrated to the to Illinois, where my dad got his degree at the University of Illinois in aeronautical engineering. And to kind of put food on the table, my mom worked three jobs every day for actually the first 12 years of of my upbringing. And three jobs, three jobs. Yeah. And all of those jobs are in small businesses. So she worked at a restaurant. She worked at a nursing home. She worked as a babysitter. All of them were really forms of small business. I mean, you know, I, I don't think I knew about it at the time. I mean, I washed dishes alongside her inside of a Chinese restaurant. But, you know, I think outside of that, I kind of just took for granted that the places where we worked was really a great way for me to get to know the neighborhood and, and honestly, a great way to learn English and a great way to hang out with my mom. <laughs> yeah. How many siblings did you have? Only a child. So back in the day, it was a one-child policy, and that was fairly strictly enforced in China. And so once I arrived, it was kind of the end of the journey. <laughs> oh, wow. So you spent a lot of time with your mom then, <clears throat> helping her out. Being in a restaurant, doing dishes, that was very a normal thing. So tell me, though, were you in Champaign-Urbana? Yeah, we were in Champaign-Urbana. Okay. That's right. So you, you grew up there. Mm -hmm. And where did you go to college? I went to Berkeley. Okay. In the Bay area. Yeah. Okay. What did you major in? I, I think it was something like math. Yes. Industrial engineering operations research, which was really an, an applied math major. At Berkeley, it, it has a history starting in the math department, then moving out into the engineering school. Did you pick that major? Did you decide to go to Berkeley because you knew you wanted to do that? Or did you just want to get out of Illinois? Or like, what? how'd you pick Berkeley? No, no, no. I moved in the middle of high school from, oh. yeah, from Illinois to, to the Bay Area. And okay. honestly, it was culture shock. Yeah. <laughs> Where I grew up, it was a place that rewarded athletics more so than academics. And so I grew up playing a lot of sports. And that's kind of 
how you know I learned to make friends, speak the language, and really integrate into you know I think all the different communities and, and, and neighborhoods and, and schools that I, I, I moved around a lot too. You know, as as our financial situation kind of got better, I probably from kindergarten through eighth grade I moved to four or five schools, mm. and so you know I think playing sports oh, wow. was a nice way of kind of making homogenous my experience, and, and and it was a nice way for me to communicate to a lot of different people. But in high school, so we moved out to to the Bay Area. I finished school here, but it was a huge culture shock because obviously in the Bay Area, academics is kind of A, B, C, D, E, F, G. <laughs> and then there's the other letters of the alphabet reserved for other activities. And so for me, it was a 180 switch from being this jock almost to being this nerd. And so, no, I decided to stay close. And it was a choice between going to Cal and a private school on the East Coast and we didn't have the means to make it super comfortable to go to college. I would have to take out a fairly big loan. So instead, I uh, I chose you know the school that I thought I could afford if I had to pay for it myself, and and that's what I did. So I worked and and paid for majority of my college expenses at, at Berkeley. And then you went to Stanford Business School. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Years later, yeah. Okay, so there was a break. About four years, four years in between undergrad graduation and starting um, the GSB at Stanford. What made you want to? start the GSB at Stanford? You know, it's a great question. I was working at the time for the CFO at at eBay. His name was Bob Swan. And through that experience, I got to know John Donahoe, the then CEO of eBay. And, you know, it was actually on John's advice to apply to both business school, but specifically to Stanford. And, you know, his advice was really in the form of developing me as more as a person and, and less almost academically or professionally. He thought that business school would teach me much more about the human side of how to do business versus, say, the just, I don't know, academic fronts and more traditional forms of learning. And he thought that that's how it helped him. And he thought that it might help me in, in a similar way. And so I applied. I, I was fortunate to get in and I, and I went. Okay. So tell me, this is where things all begin with DoorDash, right? Yeah. Tell me about the earliest moments of, of DoorDash and how that all came about. Yeah, it's actually good timing. I mean, literally today is 10 years after when I completed the first delivery at DoorDash. Now, then it wasn't called DoorDash. I'll tell you about that. And so going into Stanford, I did not think I was going to go and start a company. Let me, let me start with that. That was not why I went to Stanford. I went to Stanford because a leader I had I really admired told me that it might help develop me in certain ways, actually mostly non-professionally. And I got to meet a group of folks I, I really loved. They became my co-founders. I mean, we became friends first. We weren't looking to start a company together. We just, it was really, a, you know, a pair of two roommates, you know, me and Evan from the business school, Stanley and Andy from the undergrad, actually, they're CS majors at the time. And we met through different classes, actually, got to be friends, worked on a few projects. And one of the courses that we took, all four of us, just, you know, it happened to be at the same time was a class on just working on different projects. It was called, I think it was called Startup Garage. And so... Oh, wow. Yeah, the goal was to launch different projects. I don't know if they actually thought any of the projects would become into <laughs> businesses. That wasn't how we thought about it either. But what united the four of us was always, you know, in our different ways, an interest and a desire to help small businesses. You know, I had my own story, but, but my co-founders kind of have their own as well. And that's why we got together and we actually worked on different projects. We worked on, you know, one project to build marketing tools to help small businesses figure out whether or not they're spending efficiently. We worked on another project to help small businesses 
launch a product into the corporate, um, not just the consumer segment. Both of those maybe lost our interest at, at some point in time. And you know, through <clears throat> this journey of working on projects, we spoke to hundreds of small businesses. And these were businesses in different categories. Some were restaurateurs, some were retailers. And it was just surprising to us how often a few of them told us that they struggled with deliveries, which we kind of honestly dismissed at first. But one, one of those conversations was with a macaroon store on University Avenue. And what was it called? The store name is Chantal Guillaume, and, and Chloe was the store manager. I still remember this conversation where we're just telling, asking her, can you tell us about everything you do? And we kind of just, you know, followed her or shadow her, for lack of better words, for about, I don't know, an hour. And at some point, she went into the back room, grabbed out a book of, they, they happened to be just orders that she had turned down. All of them had one thing in common. They were all delivery orders. So she literally had written down customer information, payment details, the exact order detail, and could not fulfill that order, losing, you know, hundreds, thousands of dollars per week, which for a small business is a huge deal because it's a cash flow business. Yeah. And when we asked her, why are you turning away all of this business? And she said, look, I'm a one person, maybe sometimes two person shop. Who's going to do the deliveries? (laughs) This is not why I started this store. It's not why I work here. It's not why I get up every day. You know, what excites her is her craft and talking to customers. It's not logistics. That's just not the why nor the excitement. And so we said, okay, maybe there's something here. And that's really how we got the idea to get into delivery for DoorDash. I'm just curious, would you just walk into stores and be like, hey, can can we talk to the manager and then hang out for a while? Like, how yeah. do you, or do you use connections? Or- no, no, we literally walk door to door. I mean, we, I mean, even to this day, I have restaurateurs who will text me or call me directly because I walked into their stores, I washed dishes, I prepped salads, I help them with accounting, whatever the task of the day is. You, you have to remember for small business owners, they have 50 things on their to-do list almost every single day. Yeah. And usually it's very tough where there's 50 of those things and one or two of them as individuals yeah. to do the work, right? And so yeah. if they'll take any help they can get. And so mm-hmm. I was effectively free help. And it was, it was a great trade because I got tons of information about who they were as individuals, their stories of why they got into what they do and, and you know, and, and even a business idea. Was anyone ever non-receptive in Palo Alto? I'm just curious since I used to live there. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm sure there were, but I don't know. I mean, it, on these sorts of things, I think it's the conversations that you remember that tend to be the ones that matter and they tend to be the ones that yeah. count. And so yeah. maybe not everyone was fully receptive, but it was, it was it still it was great. So you talked to a lot of potential users and then the four of you said, hey, we're seeing a trend here. What did you do next? Did you say, let's start something or did you say, let's just pursue this for our class a little bit further? No, no, no. So we, we um, you know, the way I always think about frankly, products, I I wouldn't even say businesses, I would say products first, is, you know, what problem are we trying to solve? And and why hasn't it been solved before? I mean, we live in a capitalistic place, largely speaking. And that means, I don't know, delivery is not a new idea. If delivery is so easy to think of as an idea, how come 99% of stores do not do their own deliveries? And so we said, well, maybe the reason is because nobody wants them to. Maybe no consumers want delivery. Maybe Places like New York City are just special snowflakes and 
and they like delivery, but everyone else, maybe they don't like delivery. And so we said, okay, well, let's, let's, the first question we should ask ourselves is, is there a consumer problem here? Is it that there's no delivery in, in America? This is 2013 because nobody wants there to be. And so what we did was we literally on a Saturday, and this is yeah, January 12th, 2013, we put up a landing page. I wouldn't call it a website. Okay. I called it a landing page with PDF menus, eight PDF menus of restaurants in Palo Alto that we as students would frequent all the time. And then we put a Google voice number that rang the cell phones of all four of us. Okay. All four of us founders, right? If somebody wanted to place an order, I mean, you could not transact through this website. It was called paloaltodelivery.com. Because for $10, it was available on, <laughs> um, on any hosting service. We got it. And literally, I mean, I want to say it was an hour, an hour and a half after putting this up, we got our first order. No. An hour after. An hour and a half. Wow. Yeah. We, listen, I mean, look, we didn't send out this URL, paloaltodelivery.com. I mean, it's not you know, the easiest to spell. It's certainly not very scalable. We didn't even think Google would crawl us or be able to because of you know, when they would index you know, all of the different new content on the internet. But anyways, someone, in this case, a customer in Palo Alto, typed in, we believe the way it happened is typed in Palo Alto Deliver into the browser, probably just hit enter. and because they spelled it perfectly, <laughs> uh, which is what are the odds of that, right? We, we got our first order and it was a customer that ordered Pad Thai and Spring Rolls. And so, you know, our, our cell phones rang. It was a real voice on the other side. It, it wasn't, you know, so, so someone just trying to troll us. It was a real order. Yeah. So in my Honda, one of my co-founders and I, we placed the order at like a takeout order at this restaurant, went to the restaurant, collected the items and made the delivery. And then charged the person when you got- charged the cu- good, great question. Yeah. You couldn't, <laughs> because you couldn't transact in any way, shape or form on the website. I used to work at, I, I worked at square, um, the, the, the kind of the prior summer as, as an intern. And so, and my job was really trying my best to make sure those card readers at the time would work. This is a while ago. So you square today, obviously very different company, but back then it was those white dongles. I don't know. If I you remember, remember those. Yes. yes. The jack of an iPhone. Yeah, exactly. And okay. so I had a bunch of those <laughs> oh <my laughs> um, laying God. around my bag. And so I just took <sighs> an extra dongle created. It's basically my personal square <clears throat> account where we're running. Wow. This, right. <laughs> and collected oh my payment. God. So it wasn't the most smooth, shall we say, customer experience. I mean, think about it. You got you, you to gotta scroll through pages of PDFs. You got to call, right? Yeah. You got to wait for some one of the four phone numbers to pick up. You place the order over the telephone. And then you wait for, you know, at the door, someone to swipe your credit card through this card reader. I mean, this is not... So but, suspicious. But, 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 but it's <laughs> very suspicious but, and, and very... You know, you know, cumbersome, but it showed us that, hey, all we were trying to do was answer this question, do customers want delivery? That's all yeah. we were trying to answer. Yeah. We weren't trying to answer the question, how great of an experience does it have to be to do this A, B, and C? It was none of that. It was just fundamentally, if only pizza places and Chinese restaurants offered delivery, if we could offer delivery for the first time from places that never offered it before, would people care? Yeah. Did you get tipped? 
We did. We did. I, we, we did get a tip. We, we didn't have a way to, to add the tip. So, so the, I, I think he had a quarter or two from laundry. Doing that. So, hey, I'll take it. I'll take it. It's greater right, than zero. Right, so I'll, I, right. I, I, right. Oh, my God. Tony, you're almost like comically suited as a startup founder for your eventual idea. Like your background. I didn't remember that you worked at Square and you had all these like squares. In the- I know. You just can't tell these stories you know, looking forwards. I mean, you can only tell them looking backwards and yeah. Or, or, or the fact that, you know, a key part of, of how to make DoorDash, you know, successful at the scale we are today is, is really being interested, not just being competent, but being super curious about the math around the logistics, which has a lot to do with what I studied in college, but none of this stuff, you know, were things I was thinking of. I didn't study applied math because I thought at one day I would be in the world of logistics. I mean, no. I actually wanted to be a cancer researcher. Most of my work as an undergrad was applied math intersected with the fields of molecular biology. So. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. You are a logistics nerd. I'm going to just come out now, and say it. Now I am. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe all of my life I have been. And, and it was just DoorDash that like ripped it out. <laughs> Okay, so you have your you you test it out with a super yeah. janky version. Yes, you get some customers, you get some bites. Yeah. Then what? Yeah, so got super excited, right? At that we got our first order, but but it was kind of dribbles afterwards, right? It wasn't like we just exploded. It was nothing like that at all. So from about January of 2013, which is when PalosoDelivery.com launched, to the May time period. We were, I don't know, maybe uh, we kind of sent out this URL, palatodelivery.com, to a few listservs on the Stanford campus. And so we um, flyered a lot of the the dorms and, you know, undergrad, grad, anyone that would allow us in the buildings. We kind of were a delivery service effectively only for Stanford, right? That's what we were from January to May. That's also when we applied to Y Combinator. That was all the information we had. We were probably seeing about 10 to 20 orders a day. So we were not talking about explosive out of the gate volume and we kind of hovered around there. But the one thing that we didn't notice was that while maybe we didn't have, you know, an infinite number of customers out of the gate, we had customers that loved us. And even on this janky product where every time you have to wait for the card reader to swipe correctly and all of this, those same 10 to 20, I even know their names to this day because I was doing the deliveries. And I would see yeah. them and, and they kept ordering. And so that gave us the confidence that, you know, there's certainly enough to progress to the next stage and maybe try this project out further. And that's really what prompted us to apply to Y Combinator, which we did in, in that April, May, I want to say time period. And then we, yep. we were part of the summer 2013 batch. Yes. So summer 2013, you uh-huh. guys arrive at YC. I'm just curious because, you know, it was sort of, our goal in life was someday maybe a company will go public. I mean, never <laughs> did I think that would actually happen. But anyway, what was your experience like during the summer batch, summer 2013? It was great. You know, the first two weeks I remember were were, uh, were pretty funny because we're still in school, <laughs> yeah. And and a lot of our friends were you know planning their awesome vacations and 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 <laughs> you know some of them especially. Some of our business school classmates, they had, you know, these, um, I guess, jobs that paid bonuses in the summer to, I guess, maybe further entice them or lock them in. We were delivering hummus for my Honda, right? <laughs> and, and so when people asked us, hey, what are you guys doing, you know, and, and, I, and I showed them the stains in my, in my Honda, they would 
they would kind of like smile, you know, and it, that actually ex- motivated the heck out of us. You know, we were, um, it, it's almost like we had this secret that maybe others hadn't known about yet. And we were just super jazzed. I, I think this is pretty important. Like in the early days, so much of why you work on something doesn't have that much to do with how much business activity there is, right? And, and we were just super excited about the problem, super excited about working with one another. And, and the experience of YC, to me, was a big reason why DoorDash ever became a company. Because the way we tended to think about things early on was DoorDash up until Y Combinator, even, even through Y Combinator, I might argue, was really in our minds a project. And remember, the first question we asked about this project is, okay, do consumers want to pay for this service? That was kind of the first, you know, do consumers want this? But then we asked a couple more questions, and this is really how I still think about a lot of things today. It's, you know, before we talk about big business idea and, you know, all the things that we talked about, public companies or stuff like that, it's like, well, what problem are we actually solving? What, what are we doing that, you know, isn't being done before or hasn't been d- done before? And, 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 and then at, just asking more questions. So the first question was, do consumers want this? The second question for us was, would merchants actually pay for this? Yeah. 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 Right. Would they pay for this? And then the third question was, do drivers actually want this job? Right. Because we have three customers. We don't have one consumer. Yes, that's our end consumer, but we have a marketplace where we have consumers, we have these merchants, so restaurants, now increasingly other kinds of stores. And then we have we have dashers, the drivers on our network. And so yeah. that's our business. And we really needed to intimately understand all three. And that's what we did that summer. It's why we did every single delivery you know, mm. um, alongside yep. our dashers. And, and, and that was, that was really, really important. It's why we worked inside restaurants. It's why I went door to door to door, all of those stories, all the still, I still am customer support for, you know, our first 20, 30 merchants. All of that was it, to understand those three questions. And so why common here for us was really about answering those three questions. And I remember we kind of almost took like this militaristic, if, if you will, like view on answering those questions. It was 10 a.m. to 2 a.m. every single day, unless there was like some life or personal emergency. And that's what we committed to one another for those, you know, I want to say it was 11 weeks or so, right? Uh, Using demo day as kind of a forcing function of answering those questions. Because the way we thought about it was, look, whether or not we continue this project is really a reflection on where we're going to spend our time, which is our most valuable asset. And you guys still had one more year of, of Stanford, right? Yeah, Andy and Stanley did. A couple of us had one more year of Stanford. Evan and I, no, we didn't. We we graduated, but we we just turned away jobs, right? We just okay. turned away. Oh my right? God. But to me, it was what excites me or, or how I make decisions on where to spend my time tends to be the following. And it, I mean, it was something that I learned a long, long time ago, way before starting DoorDash was where am I going to have the least regrets and the most fun? That's it. And that's kind of how I make decisions on where I, I spend time. That's a good motto, rule of thumb. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it, it happened really when I was, you know, graduating from college when, again, I wanted to be a cancer researcher. I thought I wanted to be a cancer researcher. And it was when I had achieved a goal of mine at that time, which was to get into this particular grad school, that I realized, whoa, you know, when, when that decision was actually put in front of me, where it was a 12-year commitment to go to grad school, you know, it made it really real. <laughs> yeah. And as a result, I couldn't commit. And I actually... 180 into a world of business. It's how I, you know, kind of even got along the steps of heading into business school. I'm like, wow, like I'm actually somewhat unemployed at college graduation, which isn't the greatest feeling, certainly not the best present for my parents. 
I, I think in those three months where I felt feelings of guilt and apprehension, anxiety, failure, I ultimately got a job and landed on my feet and realized I was going to be okay. And that's when I realized we're going to be fine. Like the fact that we, we got to some of these places, like the fact that I got to go to Berkeley probably meant that I was, you know, I, I had the great fortune of being a part of a small collection of people that could do a lot of things. And so that lesson was what translated to me and our team when we were thinking about, you know, our time through Y Combinator. It's where are we going to spend our time? And our answer to ourselves was if we can answer affirmatively, very clearly, you know, those three questions about would consumers want the service and pay for it? Would restaurants pay for the service? And would drivers actually want to do the work for a certain pay per hour? Then hey, we're going to actually continue. And we answer those questions, you know, first and foremost to ourselves. And then fortunately, you know, just by answering those questions, we also saw growth that was actually organic growth. We, we didn't spend any money on marketing. When did you like consciously make the decision that you were going to launch delivery in the suburbs? Because I remember that was sort of the big thing, like why not start in San Francisco? Yeah. Like everyone else who was doing this. Well, here's the thing. I think sometimes... And you have to do both, which is hard. That's why it's hard to just pick one or the other. But when you start, I think, solving a problem, I really think you got to anchor in one of these two things. So the two things I'm talking about are what customer problem are you solving? Like what value can you create? And then the second is what business are you building? What value can you capture? And I think in the beginning, you got to really focus on the first because you just got to know if there's something there. Forget the business for a second, right? And I think sometimes, and, and this is how I thought about the suburbs and the cities. To me, when we talk to customers, because we were doing all these deliveries, we did that actually for the first two years of DoorDash's um, existence, history. We learned that there's a greater need in the suburbs, right? Because there are fewer alternatives. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, and because there's just a proximity challenge. Typically how cities are laid out, frankly, anywhere globally is you have main streets and then you have neighborhoods surrounding them. Now, the distance tends to be much larger as we start talking about suburbs and, and, and much closer when we talk about you know, these cities. And in cities, you have the alternative of just walking down the elevator you know, and, and you know, throwing a rock and probably hitting 100 restaurants. But in a suburb, you're, unless you have a really strong arm, you're not going to be hitting anything. And so you're going to be driving around. And so we constantly heard particularly from families with young children. That was the, That's me. That was the segment that we, we heard loud and clear, kind of, this is who we're going to go and target. We found that to be tr you know, very true with suburbs. We did not find that to be true when we, when we ran tests in cities. It wasn't like we just said, oh, you know what? There's a bunch of people in the cities. We're not going to go do the cities. No, we ran those tests. Well, we, we just heard a smaller need. And so Again, back to what problem are you solving versus what business are you building? To us, we were just focused on the problem that we're solving, and we heard this clear need. Now, we didn't know at the time whether or not the suburbs would be bigger or smaller or any of that. But what turned out to be true was that where we heard the biggest need turned out to be the biggest business. If you looked at the, the kind of history of how then you know the delivery business or the food delivery business in particular kind of accelerated through the past decade... You know, two thirds of the growth came from the suburbs of the entire mm, industry, yeah. right? And it kind of makes sense, right? It, it it comes to where the need was most acute, and it turned out to be in the suburbs, where there was just fewer alternatives for delivery. And it may have, in fact, been Paul Buchheit 
<laughs> single-handedly being your first, like, biggest, biggest user. I remember he'd always say, I've been wanting this forever. And I remember, so in 2013, summer 2013, I had a four-year-old and yeah. a one-year-old. Okay. And I worked full-time. So it was yeah. pretty hectic. Yeah. I had a little bit of an addiction to Starbucks uh, lattes. Okay. And I would order a Starbucks latte to be delivered to me by DoorDash in the morning, like before I'd go to work. Cause I didn't wow. have time to stop on the way. And I yeah. remember that was like, that was magical for me being able to have something brought to me, you know, when I had no time, it was just miraculous. And I know a lot of people felt the same way. The fact that it was available in my little East Bay Hamlet was yeah. like the best thing ever. Yeah. 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 You know, over time, over the years, I mean, certainly not when we started, but over the years, I, I, I got some funny, you know, messages from customers actually who would, <laughs> would literally email me and ask if DoorDash were available in certain zip codes because they're considering, you know, buying a new home or moving somewhere. <laughs> and they wanted to make sure that we, we <laughs> they wanted to make sure that we'd be there for them. And, and it's funny, like we actually literally put some of these wait lists um, in place. Uh, and it actually literally did help us with some of the prioritization of where we would launch because I like, guess we had oh, become wow. a part of some people's routines. Anyway, so it was it was a great privilege to have. And then sadly, we moved to England and people would say, <laughs> what do you miss most about California? The gorgeous weather? And I'd say DoorDash. That's my answer. <laughs> but we come back in the summers and my oldest son now is 13. And last summer... He used my DoorDash account so much that we were, for a short period, shut down for fraud because <laughs> DoorDash thought, like, there were so many orders coming through. They thought it was fraudulent. I mean, it was sorted out immediately. But I think my son now is the biggest DoorDash power user when he comes home. He loves it. I was going to say, like, you mentioned families with young kids, but I actually noticed in our suburbs that it was the teenagers. The teenagers who just are gaming don't want to stop. The teenagers who can't drive yet and can't go pick it up. Yeah, yeah. No, the customers grew over time, certainly. I mean, uh, it's funny, speaking of teens, we have, you know, alliances with literally the associations of high school principals. That, that's a real association, by the way. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and it's because we show up quite often to, to high schools during lunchtime. Oh. No, you, but, but you can't do that at our high school anymore. They actually said no more DoorDash deliveries. Yeah. Our yeah. So we're working on that. It was <laughs> getting, it was, it was actually just, I guess it was kind of chaotic because yeah, we got called, I guess, to the principal's office, right? So we got to figure out now how, how, how to work with um, right. these associations right. and figure that out. I have to ask a really strange question that this just has sprung up in my head. Like, what is one of the strangest problems that DoorDash has faced that you just never would have predicted? Like, you have to have a meeting with the principal because so many students are ordering it. What is something over the years that you never would have thought you'd have to be dealing with? Let's see. I think, you know, one of the ones that immediately comes to mind is how we work inside of a restaurant. I, I think one of the things that we started noticing as kind of the service became more popular was that you would literally see maybe a hundred dashers, so drivers, right, show up waiting for takeout, which obviously causes a bit of a traffic jam inside that store. The reason why it's something we never would have thought of, I mean, I still remember this very vividly. When we hit 53 deliveries per day, which was an all-time high at the time, inside Y Combinator. We celebrated, but I, I remember buying the entire team of 12 people 
Blue Line Pizza, which is one of our local favorites in, in, in the Bay Area. And, and the reason why I bought pizza for everyone was because I had this bet with the team, you know, on how many orders we can do by, by what date. And I never thought we could do 50 orders a day, right? And, yeah. and the fact that we could have 100 drivers, like, inside one lobby of a restaurant, like, that <laughs> never would have crossed my mind concurrently, right? Like, never would have crossed yeah. my mind. So what do we have to do? We had to, you know, literally build, like, our version of a drive through right? <laughs> with with lockers yeah. and, you know, how you batch orders. And, and, and it's almost like that restaurant becomes an airport, if you will. And we're kind of like the taxi queue, you know, like, like it never would have thought of that. Like that, that never would have crossed my mind, but that's something. Oh, and, wow. th th yeah. Th th they tend to be the things that come with scale that just, there's no way you would have imagined because when you're just, you know, the four of you inside my apartment at the time where we were working out of for the first year, you don't think about all of those things. Right. I remember that apartment, by the way. Yeah. We used to drive by it every day to take our, our son to school. Yeah. He went, he went to nursery school at the Stanford campus. Okay. Yeah. yeah and you had a DoorDash we sign. We like did. We did. We did. Well, I, I'm always interested in how people come up with their names. So you were Palo Alto Delivery. And when did yeah. you switch to DoorDash and how did you come up with the name? In uh, late May. And then we officially launched as DoorDash.com June 21st of 2013. Okay. And <laughs> so it's a pretty nerdy way, kind of very typical of, of, of my uh, my co-founders and me uh, of how we did this. So we, as, so PaloAltoDelivery.com, right, was the original name. So very affordable, not super scalable, not a great name. We literally looked up a database of all available domains for under $10. That was a criteria <laughs> one. Criteria two, <laughs> two syllables or less. And criteria three, ideally words that, you know, people that are regular words out of a dictionary versus, you know, maybe words without vowels and things like that. You weren't going to pay more than 10 bucks. You wouldn't no. go up to 25. No, because we were running this, Jessica, out of our own <laughs> bank accounts for most of it. And okay. you remember why see okay. back in the day, I mean, you remember this is, I mean, you were the founder, one of the founders. I mean, you know, the, 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 the sums of dollars back then were a little bit different, right? Like, like yes. the, the sums of dollars today, right? And so. It's true. And we paid ourselves nothing and paid all of the YC money to the few engineers we had, right? And so that was how we afford, you know, the, the, the first year party was going to a park and playing sports. But back to the name, right? Those were our, our criteria. And I don't know, maybe a list of three or 400 names popped up. We didn't actually circle through all of them. But, you know, once it landed on DoorDash, we kind of just said, yeah, that's it. Yeah, it's interesting about the name too. Famously, you know, the double O. Yeah, of Google is like you're, you know, there's so many names that people people try to do that double O, and you got one just that made total sense. It was just like the right perfect name, and you got that anyway. Yeah, I mean, I I, I, I think we got pretty lucky. I mean, but but that part I'll give us some credit for. The part maybe I wish I had thought a little bit further ahead was buying the domain in other countries. So we're now live in 27 countries. Uh, Didn't really think yeah. about that. But again, back to things you don't think about, right? Um, yeah, when you're just starting out. And so then by the time we had raised our Series A, <laughs> as you can imagine, there's some services and crawlers out there that effectively buy domain names of companies that have raised capital everywhere in the world, in every country, and then they resell them to you at higher prices. So it's almost yeah. like you need to do that before you raise a Series A or something. Yes, probably even earlier these days, because, you know, the, the, the capital at earlier stages is, is, is much higher than before. Super expensive. I have a couple more questions that I want to squeeze in in our time. Let's do it. I know you, and you're a very disciplined person. 
And I think that that probably is very important, you know, running a public company, being the CEO and having a family. You have two kids now? Yeah, four-year-old and a two-year-old. That's right. Okay, so you're in the zone that I was in when I was so desperate that I'd order my Starbucks coffee to the door in the morning. What do you do to make sure that you have time for your family? Do you, do you have any hacks for that? My hack for any kind of, I think at any point in time in my life stage of making sure that I have some harmony between work and, and personal life has always been to set routines. Routines to me are another way to set boundaries because they're in my calendar, right? For instance, this morning or all mornings, I, I drop off the kids. Right, the morning routine is is mine. I own that yeah. breakfast. You know, waking them up. You know, getting them ready. I mean, you, you know all about that. Breakfast, drop off. That's that's me. That's my routine. That's my time. That's protected. Right, mm-hmm. and th- and then my schedule can start for work for everything else. Right, yep. and and so I set routines. Routines to me are the things that you can keep. Like for instance, running is is, is one of my routines. I've run almost every single day for ten years in a row. Right. Wow. It's a routine. What my definition is, is it's something that you can stick with. That's it. It doesn't have to be crazy, right? I'm not saying I'm running a marathon every day or every month or every year or any of that. I'm just saying I'm running, even if it's 10 minutes today, right? That's, yeah. that, that's me time. That's fine. Maybe it was only 10 minutes, but that's really how I do it. Date nights is another example. You know, before my wife and I had kids, we just had one another. And obviously, you know, running a company, even when it's not public, is very, very stressful in starting it. And I think in, the first seven years of before we had kids, we maybe missed seven or eight date nights total in seven years. Wow. That's, that's amazing. Wow. Right. And it's because it was a routine. It was a routine. Like yeah. for instance, even during Y Combinator, I'll give you, this is the craziest example during Y Combinator when it was, you know, we were all doing the deliveries. Still, my co-founders knew that Friday nights would be date nights. Now Aww. I won't lie. I won't lie. A couple of those date nights, my wife and I were doing deliveries as the date. <laughs> so, Sweet. Won't lie. Yeah, you know, you know, it, it keep very romantic sometimes. But to me, like that's what I mean by routine. Yeah, it's sacred. Yeah, exactly. And, and they can change, right? Now my kids actually go to school, so I have school drop off. That's part of my routine. So mm-hmm. that's that's really what I do to to make sure that I can keep harmony. And all of this be, you're doing being the CEO of a public company, mm-hmm. which again, congratulations, 10 years into things, you're a yeah. public company now. It's so exciting. Is it a lot harder than running a private company or is it just incrementally harder? What does it feel like to be a public company CEO? Oh, I think these are things always you want to just give one answer, which tends to be like an average of a bunch of experiences, right? And then you compare that to a bu- the average of a bunch of experiences when we were younger. To me, it's all about like, how does the distribution change, right? So like, some things get easier. I, I'm not doing deliveries every single day every, anymore, right? But I still do yep. deliveries once a month. I still want to know what's going on. But the things that, you know, that are more challenging now is we have a lot more people. And we have, you know, over 5,000 you know, employees at the company. And we have over 3 million dashers, you know, that come to our platform and drive every quarter, right? That's, oh, wow. that's huge. And so, so the responsibility, that part of the emphasis, if you will, of, of my role, uh, of, it's not just about products. It's not just about business performance. All of that is very important. But what is our role in terms of, you know, the communities that we serve? That's really important. That, that's, that's very different when you're, four of us in, you know, doing 10 orders a day, 
And, and, and yeah. now we're a fabric of the communities that we're lucky to serve. We're part of local GDP. We're mm. part of local trust and safety systems like the police. I mean, we're part of like literally all of these different networks that really represent the personalities of the neighborhoods we live in. And so to me, that that is much, much more difficult because there's more things to think about. The weight behind each one of those decisions is greater. So, like I said, like the distribution changes. What's your favorite part of the job? Are you look forward to going on those once a month deliveries? So one of the things that I think is really important and, and it's hard to keep as, as a company grows bigger is the natural tendency is to take, I think, leaders away from the problems. Oh, what can I take off of your plate? Or no, you should be you know, there's certain things you should be doing, other things you shouldn't be doing, right? You shouldn't be in all of these details. You shouldn't be talking to all these customers. And I disagree <laughs> because, well, A, it, that's what gets me going. But, but B, it's also, I think, what's important. Otherwise, maybe we start to, you know, almost lose the identity of the company a bit of why we started this in the first instance. And, and, and so for me, I, I think that's, that's really, that, that is what I enjoy most, like working on the product. If that means doing deliveries, that means doing deliveries. That means answering support calls. I do support 15 minutes a day. Every day? Yeah. And it's, it's because I'm just trying to stay close to the pulse. Maybe I'm not literally talking to our users in interviews every day. Like I used to do that, right? For, I don't know, the first six, seven years, but I want to have a pulse check. I, 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 I yeah. don't want to be removed. Uh, you know, I don't want to have things interpreted for me. And, and to me, I think that's that, that at least is, is what's, what's authentic to me. I'm not saying that that's for everyone, but that's, what's authentic to me. I think that's really important also as leaders to be able to exhibit good judgment because things are always changing. You know, the world that we live in today, 2023 versus when we started the company in 2013 is wildly different in so many different ways. And you know, and, and one of the things I, I've, I've kind of made sure to not take, you know, myself or our teams too seriously is that because of how fast the world is changing, we can't take our experience nor our previous accomplishments that seriously because everything is changing. And the only way to have a chance at, you know, achieving success, I think, in the future is to almost start over, you know, mm -hmm. and, and yeah. that's tough. That's super tough. That's super, super tough to like start. But, but that's kind of the mindset I want at least us to have a DoorDash. Can I quickly ask one last question that's more of a fun fact about Tony Shu and not DoorDash? Sure. No problem. And, uh, <laughs> well, you mentioned that as you were growing up, you moved around yeah. and sports was a way for you to meet people and, and that sort of thing. There was someone very special on one of the sports that you played with. Do you remember <laughs> that, that story? In the basketball realm, I played in AAU basketball, so that that's like a it's a, it's like a league, right? And 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 it's a lot more professionalized today than it was back then. But it, it it was a competitive league, and it was you know for for a lot of us growing up in the Midwest, we obviously idolized Michael Jordan. We wanted to become professional basketball players, and you know one of the players in our traveling league at the time, um, he wasn't yet recognized as the chosen one, but his name was LeBron James. 
he wasn't yet. He wasn't yet the you know the the LeBron of, of today. But look, we were twelve. Okay, so we have to we have to you know. How tall uh, was he at twelve years old? How tall? I want I want to say he was maybe a little under six feet. I was five. I've been five eight my entire life. So I've been five eight since. Um, <laughs> I've been five eight for you know over twenty something years, but like <laughs> obviously that wasn't true for my teammates, and it wasn't true for people I played against. But <clears throat> but yeah, so so no, we got to play in a traveling circuit with LeBron and his team, and it was kind of we we're the Midwest region, and you know people play different teams and that sort of thing. And you know, like, this is one of those things where it's just like back to talking about what I thought of DoorDash, maybe when, when it got started, or, or you know what I thought about my own personal journey or even in this basketball story, it's like, it's so hard to know what's going to happen 10 years out, you yeah. know? And, yes, and, right. and, 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 and in any profession, right. Whether it's basketball or I don't know, business or maybe cancer research or whatever, like if you put in that work day in, day out, and you just focus on those inputs and I mean, great things can happen. It's really hard. I mean, there needs to be a lot of, you know, hard work and luck and other things, um, and, and others around you. But man, if you put in that work, it's, it's pretty incredible sometimes what the outcomes could be. Oh, well, you oh, guys yeah. have an incredible story and we better let you go take your kids to school now. Thank um, you. <laughs> speaking of your routine, but congratulations. I mean, 10 years, 10 year anniversary Thank for Dory, DoorDash. Um, yep. we're so happy for you and it was so much fun catching up with you today. Yeah. Likewise. It was great to see you, Tony. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much, Jessica. Thanks, Carolyn. Bye. Yeah. Bye. Oh, Carolyn, that was so much fun. Tony's great. He is great. You know, I think the thing he said at the very end was actually like the coolest thing, which is like, you can't rest on your laurels because the world changes so much. It's just inevitable. Like the world's going to change. And so if you're going to sit there and think like, Everything that I did all this cool stuff back when, and you're not continuing to do cool, interesting stuff like that's on you. Like you got to evolve, which is kind of an obvious thing, but it's like, he said it really well. I thought, yeah, he had a lot of really good insights. I'm kicking myself because there were so many things I didn't get to ask him that like, I also, I forgot to ask him about DoorDash during COVID. I mean, didn't it like blow up then in a good way? Like, oh, I just. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. And the other thing I was kind of curious about all this, uh, this might be two in the weeds, but I was like, they must have looked at Domino's, right? Because Domino's was delivering pizzas to the suburbs for decades. And. But I I never ordered from Domino's. But I never ordered from it either. And then so it's like, what? Why? But, But people did, of course. So it's like what were the learnings from the pizza delivery business that they then applied to DoorDash? What, you know, there's just like so many things you could ask Tony, so many things. I know maybe not for this podcast, but you could really get deep in the weeds about delivery logistics and organization and all of the fine tuning that has to happen. I mean, I was talking to Paul before this podcast and he was saying, basically DoorDash is an organizational work of art. And I loved that quote. Really I love that quote. And I actually yeah. I should tell Tony that. But it is. It's like so much more complicated than I think most people understand. Or most people think it would be. Totally. And 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 a great example is when DoorDash is in a town, they have to be connected to the cops. They have to be connected to the school principals. And 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 that's not even that's before they even start connecting with the merchants. Right. And then, right. you know, and so it's like, and I'm sure there's a hundred other examples of 
orgs that they need to make sure are going to be okay and work smoothly and like that they're not going to ruffle feathers and like so many things. Oh gosh. Who is in charge of like launching in a new country? Oh my word. Oh, and yeah. And international is a whole other can of worms. So, oh my gosh. Um, Well, I'm so happy for them. And I think it's so exciting that the timing worked out that we interviewed him 10 years to the day that they put up that little website, that PDF saying order here. It's such a nice story. I'm sure they still own that website. Now I'm going to go to Palo Alto delivery.com. It actually probably redirects. Now I think about it, like (laughs) it's probably just an auto redirect. I think they probably took care of that. I'm sure they did, but it'd be great if there was some little banner there, like this is DoorDash archive or history or whatever. Anyway. Well, that was a lot of fun. I'm glad we got to talk to Tony and um, I'll talk to you later. See you later. Okay. Talk to you soon. Okay. Bye. Bye.